it's uh, so great to see everyone here. Um, if this is your first time visiting, welcome. Uh, my name is Jason. I, I serve as one of the pastors uh, here on staff at the church. Um, it's good to be back on the pulpit. Um, seems like a lot has been going on um, in the world. I was told this week that apparently aliens exist, so I was like, that's crazy. Um, but just like just how crazy the, the past few years have been, I heard that and immediately I was like, well, what are we doing for dinner, you know? Um, so, that, yeah, anyways, um, we're back in our sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, if you were with us the past four weeks, we took a short detour uh, to spend a few weeks on a summer speaker series on the theme of community. And um, having kind of uh, listened to all four sermons, I realized that it wasn't a detour at all um, because that's what the book of Acts is about. It's God forming his first community of followers we're learning kind of what, it's, what it was like uh, for those initial followers to become a community together, to live in this new reality formed by the gospel. And uh, just to bring us up to speed, um, in Acts 1, you have Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, and he gives his followers a new mission, a new vision for their life. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he says, this is going to be your north star from this point on. You're not going to live your life for yourself. You're not going to live your life to amass wealth and possessions. You're not going to live your life for worldly success from this moment on. The north star of your life, you're going to be living testimonies of what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. And he says, I'm not going to give you all the details of how this is going to happen. I'm not going to answer every question you have. I'm not going to tell you exactly what you're going to have to endure, but you're going to have everything you need to carry out this mission when the Holy Spirit comes. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. On the day of Pentecost, the first church is established. Revival breaks out. People start getting healed. People start selling their possessions to give to those in need. And everyone on the outside is utterly amazed because they've never seen a community like this before. And the church begins to grow and grow and grow. And with that growth comes challenges, comes persecution, right? The, these, the, this community is creating such a buzz that they're threatening the powers that be. They're, and so their leaders start getting thrown in prison. They're watching their beloved friends and family members be stoned to death. And yet nothing seems to be able to thwart the plans of God because all of this persecution only continues to further his mission, right? It scatter, scatters these believers from Jerusalem then to Judea and Samaria, just like he promised. And beginning in Acts 10, which we're looking at today, we're going to see the next big shift where we're going to watch the gospel move from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at the first half of Acts 10, uh, verses 1 to 23. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 23. Uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me. But if you'd like to follow along on your mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Okay, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 23. This is the reading of God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. 
Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes and our ears to receive what you would have for us today as we discover your word together. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, I love Korean fried chicken, okay? Um, and uh, I can't eat Korean fried chicken um, without uh, the, like the pickled radish they give you on the side. Okay, they're, they're one, they're, you know, they're, they're a combination that you must have together, okay? And um, I, I love it. You know, the, the sourness and the acidity of the radish kind of cuts through the greasiness of the chicken. It's perfect, okay? Um, and I was eating it this week, and a thought came to mind. And I, I was thinking, I wonder who the first person was to think about this combination. Okay, like, I have these existential thoughts sometimes when I eat, and I'm like, it is such an unlikely combination, but it tastes so good. And it almost, I can't eat Korean fried chicken without the radish anymore, you know? And um, I thought to myself, because if you take the pickled radish on its own, it, it's so pungent, right? It, it stinks up your entire house. But someone at some point in time had to be like, it doesn't matter because it tastes so good with this chicken right now. And somebody had to be the first person to embrace something new. 
And I'm sure that the first person who tried the chicken and the radish didn't know that what they were doing was going to be revolutionary, okay? And it was going to change the way we ate Korean fried chicken forever, right? And now many of us can't even imagine a reality where the two don't exist together. And yet, what about that first person who did it? The first person who was embracing something new for the very first time. On a more serious note, um, you know, this week I picked up my kids um, from, from summer camp, and I love that the school they attend is, is pretty diverse, and they have friends of all different races and ethnicities, and the thought crossed my mind, um, I wonder what it was like, you know, because this is so normal to us now, you know, to see our, our, our kids uh, interact with, with students that are so different from them, come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, have different families, um, but the thought crossed my mind, I wonder what it would have been like to be a child growing up in, in, in a segregated country, right? And then to grow up in a segregated America and then have to live through desegregation in real time, right? It's, it's one thing that the laws changed, right? You have Brown versus the Board of Education that desegregated all the schools. And it's one thing for the laws to reflect a certain reality. But I thought to myself, I wonder what it was like to be the first family, like the first white family in an all-white neighborhood who was brave enough to say, you know what, we're going to have your black friend over for dinner. It's one thing for there to be a reality, and it's a completely different thing to allow that reality to actually shape your everyday life, your everyday decisions. Well, Mark Dever, who's a pastor out in D.C., says, Acts 10, this passage that we just read today, is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Now, that is a big statement. But the reason he says that is that without Acts 10, none of us in this room would be sitting here today because Christianity as we know it would not exist. It would have remained a small, marginalized sect within the Jewish community, but Acts 10 is the moment Christianity goes global. When you have two people willing to embrace something new, willing to embrace a new reality that has come. This is the moment, one of the greatest barriers ever erected. The barrier between Jew and Gentile is torn down. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ushered in a new reality. We read about it in Galatians 3.28 when Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus but somebody needed to be the first to embrace this new reality, and that is what we have in Acts 10. And it's hard to put into words just how monumental this moment is because you have, I mean, we don't live in that context, but you have two groups of people that historically could not fathom sitting at the same table together, coming together now in the gospel. In many ways, I think this text is the perfect follow-up to the sermon Chris McNerney preached last week on the Good Samaritan, because he talked about how as human beings, it is our natural inclination 
to divide, to create boundaries, to create barriers, to exclude. We're always creating in-groups and out-groups. We're all, all, always creating, using different categories by which we uh, place certain people on the inside and leave certain people on the outside. Race, ethnicity, age, political party, income bracket, personality. We are constantly creating barriers. It is what we do best. But where humans build walls, the gospel builds bridges. As Chris said last week, in the gospel, even the person you see as your enemy is capable of being your neighbor. And this is what happens in Acts 10 as these two men, Peter and Cornelius, a Jew and a Gentile, these two men who should be enemies, find common ground in the gospel. And all of us are here today as a result of these two men separately responding to the call of God and doing something that would have been unthinkable to their peers, taking a step out in faith. Neither of them knew what God was up to. Neither of them knew where God was taking them. And yet we know that the Holy Spirit was orchestrating this Kairos moment this divine encounter between these two individuals that would ultimately alter the course of history. Do you know that one step of faith today, that one ordinary act of surrender today, doesn't just have the power to impact your life, but the generations after you? It is not an understatement to say that everyday decisions you and I make a simple decision to stop and talk to someone after church today, a simple decision to respond to the urging of God to forgive someone or to reach out to that person you've been avoiding, a simple decision to not retaliate when somebody criticizes you. These small steps of faith can have reverberating impacts in your life and in the lives of those around you. Now, taking these steps of faith isn't always easy. Because taking a step out in faith often means embracing change. And nobody likes change. Um, there's a, one of my favorite lines in a poem by W.H. Auden by the, uh, called The Age of Anxiety. I'm going to put it on the screen. It says this, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. We would rather be ruined than changed. And what makes change so difficult is that change often means doing something you would normally never do. It means operating outside of your comfort zone. It means resisting old paradigms and patterns of thinking. It means letting go of something that's familiar or something you love. It means living in a way that goes against the status quo that often looks like foolishness to the world, and that is often terrifying. And this is what we see in Acts 10. God is doing a new thing. There is a new reality, but Peter can't see it. In fact, Peter doesn't want to see it. In verse 9, we read that Peter's on the roof of, his, uh, of the house he's staying at, and he's starving, and he falls into this trance. Right? And while he's in this trance, he gets this vision, strange vision of this large sheet coming down from heaven, and on the sheet, you have all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And here's a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. To which Peter responds, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
That can't be what you're telling me to do, Lord. That isn't how I've ever operated. That's crazy. That can't be God. You see, for Peter, his whole life, he has only eaten kosher foods. He's maintained every dietary Jewish ritual. He's never eaten anything unclean because according to the Jewish mindset, you eat something unclean, you become unclean. If you meet with and eat with people who eat things that are unclean, you become unclean, which is why Jews could not eat with Gentiles. And this is Peter's paradigm. This is his modus operandi. This is where he's comfortable, right? And he can't, it's so hard for him to change. It's so hard for him to see the new thing that God is doing. You know, I think about my father-in-law. I remember many years ago, um, he asked me, Jason, I need you to help me um, move all the, um, my old files on my computer onto this new external hard drive, okay? And I said, okay, sure, I'll help you out. Um, he plugs in the external hard drive, and um, you know, I said, show me the files that you want moved. And he opens this folder. I'm like, great, a lot of files. I do Control-A, Control-C, Control-V. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, and I was like, oh, I, I just select it all, copy, and paste. He said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And he was like, what you have to do to make sure they all get in there is you click on one file, <laughs> and you drag it over to the file, okay? Make sure the, the thing, the image is highlighted and then you drop it in, right? I was like, oh, oh my gosh, that's, that's, gonna, that's gonna take forever. Like, uh, you know, he's like, no, 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 you have to, that, that will, oh, that's the only way to guarantee they're, they're all in there. So I sat there for about an hour and watched him take each file, <laughs> drag it in, and sometimes it'd be, he'd be in the process of dragging it and it would, like his mouse would fall, I'd be like, oh no, no, no. He would do it over again, he would do it over again. And I realized, like, people would rather, people would rather be ruined than change. <laughs> like, it was so hard. And, you know, I, as much as I give my father-in-law a hard time, I don't understand Gen Z, too. You know, I say this all to every generation before the next is like, I don't understand the next generation. I don't know why you operate the way we do. And it, it shows me, as human beings, we do not like embracing new. We like staying comfortable. We like what is familiar. And when you have operated in a very specific way your entire life, it is very hard to change. Peter has operated the same way his entire life. His entire life, he has very neat categories as to who is good and who is bad, who is in and who is out. And what Peter does not realize is that God is doing something new. He's trying to grow Peter out of his preconceived notions. He's trying to kill all of Peter's categories about what makes a person good and what makes a person bad. He's trying to show Peter that salvation is not about following all the rules. It's not about his performance. It's not about maintaining all the dietary rituals, but about placing your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that makes all who are unclean clean. You see, Peter came in with a very specific idea of how the world worked, how salvation worked, that God now has to undo one step at a time. Do you know that at this very moment, God is at work undoing the lies we've been trained to believe about ourselves and others? 
Every day, God is undoing old patterns of behavior. God is undoing damage done by our families of origin. He's undoing our insecurities and our fears. He's undoing our self-righteousness and our pride. But many of us would rather be ruined than changed. And you can see how hard it is for Peter to see what God is trying to communicate to him, which is why God has to show him the same vision three times. Three times. And even after the third time, it still seems like Peter doesn't fully get it because it says twice after he wakes up from the trance, Luke mentions that Peter is still pondering the meaning of the vision. Now, as I'm reading this, the question I ask myself is, why does God give Peter such a strange vision that he can't understand? Like, why does God do things sometimes that we don't really understand? We just know, like, uh... Like, I feel like God is at work doing something, but I just don't know what. Like, I, why doesn't God just show Peter, this is a picture of Cornelius. He is a Gentile. This is who you're going to go meet. You're going to proclaim the gospel to him. He's going to be changed, and I'm going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to be great. But he shows him a sheet coming from heaven with animals on it. And he's like, kill it and eat it. Why? And it makes you wonder, maybe that's the way God works. Maybe God is not always interested in giving us all the answers. Maybe he's interested in teaching us how to follow him. Maybe he's more interested in teaching us how to walk by faith, how to depend on him. I imagine there are some of us in this room wondering, why do I get this overwhelming sense And the people that I love keep telling me, I feel like you should switch careers or switch jobs. Why does this one person keep showing up in my life? Like I've moved four churches to try to get away from this person, but (laughs) here they are at Citizens again. Like why? Why does this same situation keep happening over and over again? Why does there seem to be this recurring theme in every relationship I'm a part of? And we wish God would just tell us exactly what he's doing. But maybe that's the point. Maybe he simply wants us to trust him that he's doing a new thing. You see, in verse 17, it says, while Peter was wondering about the vision. So he has no clarity about what the vision means yet. While he was wondering about the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. And they call out to him. And then verse 19, again. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, these three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. That's it. He's still trying to figure out what this vision means, and these things, random things are happening. These three men show up at the gate. He's like, "Uh, does this have anything to do with the vision? God is like, see those three guys? I've sent them, so follow them. There's no indication of where he's going to take them. There's, there's no, like, you're going to go here and do this. Just follow them because I've sent them. And that's what Peter does. One step at a time, one act of surrender at a time, embracing the new isn't always a monumental thing. Sometimes it's one step of faith. Sometimes it's, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's, hey, what are you doing for dinner? Why don't you come on over? 
It's not, God doesn't say, hey, if you say sorry, like, don't worry, they're going to be changed, they're going to love you, and it's going to be great, you're going to go back to the way it was. If you invite them over for dinner, it's going to be amazing conversation, this is going to lead to this, and you're going to network with it. No, one step at a time. I've sent them, go with them, don't hesitate. And what's really amazing about this story is that it's not just Peter that the Spirit is leading one step at a time. At the exact same moment, we read that the Spirit is also leading this Gentile man named Cornelius. We read that he was a centurion in the Italian regiment, so great job working for the government, making good money. We also read that he comes from a good family of devout and God-fearing people who prayed regularly and gave generously. And, and by God-fearing, scholars uh, say that this doesn't necessarily mean that Cornelius was a Christian because he hasn't heard about Jesus yet. Okay, that's going to happen in the second half of Acts 10, right? But it's more so that he believes in the existence of God in a general sense and lives a religiously moral, upright life. Okay, so basically... In Cornelius, you have the definition of just a solid guy, okay? I guarantee you, if Cornelius showed up at Citizens Today, I would get text, be like, yo, Jason, who's Cornelius? <laughs> right? Good money, good family, status, right? He, he was in the military, so most likely, I'm assuming he had a six-pack, okay? I just, like, create these, you know, narratives in my mind. It helps me understand these better. Right? Generous, goes to church regularly, prays regularly, but isn't like too much like Jesus is my homeboy, right? Which is, which is great because people love that, right? We want people that are like, they give generously, they're kind, they go to church regularly, but I don't want anyone who might go on missions or I don't want anyone who's going to go into ministry, right? So Cornelius is just the right amount, perfect, right? And I just love that one of the first Gentile converts in the New Testament is not a criminal, is not a sex trafficker, is not a villain, not a bad guy. One of the first Gentile converts in the New Testament is actually the best society has to offer. He's a great guy. He's a solid guy. There's no one more put together than Cornelius. And the implication is that someone, even someone as, quote, good as Cornelius, isn't good enough and is in utter need of the grace of God. In some ways, the conversion of someone like Cornelius to me is even more profound because he's someone who, by worldly standards, doesn't need much. I would say that most of us here at Citizens can resonate far more with a Cornelius than we can with a tax collector or a prostitute. Many of us are middle to upper middle class. We go to good schools. We have good jobs. We have good families. Many of us have been going to church our entire lives. Many of us serve. We give. But do we believe that we too need to be changed? That we too need the grace of God in our lives. You see, you don't just need to repent of the bad things you've done. We need to repent of the good things we've done that make us feel right with God. 
Isaiah 64 says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so it doesn't matter that Cornelius has a great pedigree and a great track record. He needs the gospel to transform him. And I love the juxtaposition of these two characters in Acts 10. And we're going to get to the rest of the story next week, and we're going to get to their interactions next week. But here you have two people who on one, on one hand who are culturally as different as two people can be. You have a Jew and you have a Gentile. You also have two people on completely different stages of their journey of faith. You have Peter who literally lived life with Jesus. He was Jesus' best friend, his right-hand man. He witnessed every miracle. He witnessed the crucifixion. He witnessed the empty tomb. He's now an apostle teaching, preaching, healing. I mean, he's at the pinnacle. He's the Navy SEAL of Christianity. And you have Cornelius, who's at the very beginning of his journey of faith, who's at the very beginning of his life with Jesus, at this point in the story, Peter hasn't even told Cornelius about Jesus yet, but you realize the fact that both of them are in here is Luke telling us, both are in need of the gospel. Both are in need of the grace of God. If you are here today and you are not a believer or you're checking out Christianity or curious about this person, Jesus, we're so glad you're here today. And I want you to know that I don't believe you're here by accident because we believe God is always doing a new thing. And I believe the Spirit led you here. Whether you want to believe it or not, if you were invited by a friend, if you just woke up this morning and felt an inkling, maybe I should go out to church today, we believe you're here for a reason. And that reason is to encounter the person and work of Jesus Christ the one who gave his life for you, and now the one who offers you a new start in whom there is a life of eternal joy, satisfaction, and deep fulfillment. Or maybe you, like Peter, have been a Christian or have been a believer, have known Jesus your entire life. Maybe, like Peter, you followed all the rituals to a T, Maybe you're super involved in church. Maybe you lead a community group. Maybe you're on staff here. Maybe you volunteer every single Sunday. Can I just say that God is also doing something new in you as well? That you too need to encounter Jesus again. As Pastor Tim Keller in New York always used to say, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z. You never grow out of your need for the gospel to change you. We all need to encounter the risen Christ again. Friends, every day, you and I have an opportunity to either embrace the new reality made possible by the gospel or remain stuck in old mindsets, old patterns of thinking, old paradigms. Every day, this day, you have an opportunity to bear witness to what God is doing in our lives and in the world. You see, let me just make it very clear. God does not change, but God is always changing us. God himself does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but God is always changing us. He is making all things new. 
He's always pushing us beyond what is comfortable and familiar and convenient. He's always teaching us, growing us, maturing us, always opening our eyes to see ourselves, others, and the world in a new light. You see, as different as Cornelius and Peter were, and as confused as they might have been, right? Because you got to think for Cornelius too, he's like, who is this? What is this voice speaking to me? And who is, where am I going? Why is this interaction happening? They're both confused. And yet they shared one thing in common. When God called, they listened and they followed. They embraced the new. They allowed God to change them. I believe God is calling all of us to something new today that he's doing. Will we take a step to live in this reality or will we continue to remain in our old ways, in our pride, in our selfishness, in our cynicism, in our unforgiveness? Because God is always doing a new thing. Will you embrace the new? Let me pray for us. As we do each week, I want to give us just a moment to respond to this word. And I want us to ask ourselves this question, how is God changing you? What is the new that God is calling you to embrace this morning? How is God calling you to live more deeply into the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what that means. Who is the person God is calling you to forgive? Who is the person God is calling you to reach out to? Who is God opening your eyes to see? What is God trying to teach you? And as we identify those things, can we just pray? Holy Spirit, help me to be sensitive to your leading. Open my eyes to see what you want me to see. Lord, I know that many of us don't realize it, but we carry around so many lies about ourselves, others, and the world. Sometimes, like Peter, we just, we can't see 
the new thing that you're doing, the ways that you want uh, to break us out of existing patterns of thinking, existing paradigms, destructive mindsets that have held us hostage for so long. The lies that those in our lives can't be changed. The lies that we can't change. Lies about your goodness. But Lord, you remind us in your word that you are always doing a new thing. That life with you is an adventure where we get to experience and bear witness to your grace and your loving kindness every day. Help us to lean into that. Help us to respond to the urgings that you've placed on our heart. Please help us to respond to the burdens that you've placed on our heart, the burdens for the things happening in the world, the burdens for other people. Help us to follow your lead and take a step out in faith to embrace the new. Lord, we speak out against old prevailing mindsets that have attempted to hold us, uh, keep us bondage. But we, you, we pray that you would help us to experience and live in the freedom offered to us in the gospel. We thank you for this word today. Would you continue to work, continue to open our eyes to see what you see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.